Welcome to the Getting Divorced Without Losing Your Mind podcast with Corey Shapiro. We're taking a break from our regularly scheduled programming to share with you a conversation I had with online mediator Gabrielle Hartley. Ms. Hartley spent over two decades working as a divorce attorney, a mediator. Her special sauce is the ability to resolve the unsolvable conflict. She wrote two books, the 2019 book, Better Apart, and the upcoming 2023 book, The Secrets to Getting Along. She had a recent TED Talk. Our conversation goes through different things people need to focus on while getting a divorce. You can reach Ms. Hartley on her website, GabrielleHartley.com. That's G-A-B-R-I-E-L-L-E-H-A-R-T-L-E-Y.com. I find her to be very affable, very easy to listen to, uh, very understanding emotionally of this process, and I hope you find this conversation useful. If you have any feedback for the conversation, please send me an email at feedback at gettingdivorce.org. Without further ado, here's our conversation. So, Gabrielle, before you get married, and I know people don't think about this, but as someone who's in the divorce world for a lot of time, for a long time, do you think it's helpful to think about divorce, even though it might be unromantic, after you're engaged? I mean, as someone who grew up with parents who were divorced, and I think this probably goes for many people who grow up with parents who are divorced, you can't help but to think about what might happen if things were to go sideways. And also you're asking me, and remember, when I was getting married, I was working for Judge Sunshine. Um, and when I said I was newly engaged, Judge Panapinto came from upstairs to downstairs and said to me, Gabrielle, I have two words for you, pre-nup. <laughs> there was no like congratulations. It was just get a prenup. So yeah, of course you need to think about how things might devolve should that happen? I mean, the facts are the facts. And maybe it's not really half of every individual is going to get divorced, right? Because there's repeat divorces and and maybe certain segments of the population are more or less likely than other segments. But still, it's something more than a de minimis percentage of us who are going to wind up uncoupled. So to answer your question, yes, think about it. And also, Pay attention to how you and your to-be-betrothed handle issues right now when things are good and watch how they handle things with the other people in their lives who they're maybe more comfortable and complacent about, like, you know, how does he treat mom or dad and siblings, et cetera? You know, that's not necessarily outcome determinative as to how they're going to treat you because, of course, there's always a big picture. How are those people treating them? But, you know, there's, there's information there. Yeah. Is there anything in particular? Because in my experience, people really don't know that much about divorce until they're think you know, really serious about thinking about it. And it's really interesting because marriage is a legal relationship, but we view it as, at least currently, because it right. wasn't always this way, as a romantic relationship. So is there anything specific? I understand you're giving like good tip tips about, you know, in-laws, which I think is a big part of of any uh, committed relationship, especially, you know, family times and traditions. But 
are they supposed to know anything about the actual divorce process or divorce laws? That's what I would be more, more interested about. I think it's definitely a good idea to have a basic understanding about what would happen to property acquired during marriage versus premarital property and what is designated to be premarital versus marital property. However, Corey, having worked all around the country, what I've learned, which is very eye-opening, is that those definition those definitions change and we're in a very mobile environment. And so I really think that having a prenuptial where you're figuring out all the details on how you want things to go is a great idea because that will apply no matter where you wind up living. So if you get married in California, you know, if you go to a a California lawyer, they might say, oh, you don't need to worry about inheritances. That's not in the pot. And same thing in New York, unless it's transmuted, right? But then move to Massachusetts and suddenly things that mom and dad left you get shared to some extent. And you're still the same people, but you live in the state for a month. You know, that is going to either serve to your benefit or against your benefit. Um, Corey, what's interesting is I've found in the last five years or so, I've had more and more people, mostly of the millennial generation, who have called me to ask these very particular questions um, for themselves. And I, I, you know, when it first started to happen, I thought it was kind of funny because like who would do that? But it's actually so smart to talk to a lawyer and ask questions about your particular facts and circumstances. Because I, I could sit here and say certain basics, like you can't negotiate away child support, right? You can't decide what the parenting schedule is going to be. You probably can't leave your spouse of 25 years destitute, right? Like there's <laughs> different inquiries as to fair and reasonable at the time the agreement is made. Some jurisdictions say, and it's a fair and reasonable at the time that it's applied, right? Um, things are really jurisdictionally dependent. And again, we live in, in a world where people move a lot. So it's it's important to understand the range of potential outcomes and then to talk to your but you know the person you're intending to marry to see what feels fair to the two of you and and what better time to talk about that than you know while you're still madly in love with each other. Okay, so I I I think that's good advice for people who got engaged now they're thinking about the you know this broad outlines about divorce. It's like, you know, if you get life insurance, you don't necessarily want to die, but it's it's just practical to think about protecting your life and what will happen if you uh, are no longer here financially to your family. You are still more likely to die than get divorced. Well, good. All right. So, yes, that's true. So let's move on to someone who wants to do a little bit more talking about it, but maybe something as you brought up a couple of times, the prenup, you know, these prenuptial agreements, and they might be different in different parts of the country or different uh, internationally might be something different. But basically, the idea is to dictate how you want your divorce to go to the extent you can. I know some issues like maybe uh, custody issues, we can't necessarily do that. Um, But have you seen in your time doing this, maybe some common problems of these prenups? And I thought that might be helpful for people because these are not be all and end all cures, right? No, totally. And I'm so glad that you you asked that question. Um, So a common problem which comes up with 
prenuptials is people give away too much. The non-moneyed person often so badly wants to be perceived as not being greedy and not just being, you know, getting married because the person has money that they wind up saying like, I don't want any of your money ever. Okay. So now you're married for 25 years and you've lived a fairly comfortable life and you've maybe, you know, been a professional dog walker or babysitter or teacher, but living on a much higher salary and raised some kids. And now you just you know, when you were 25 years old, negotiated away any right that you'd have to any kind of support or, you know, let's say you said, oh, any property that belonged to the moneyed spouse will remain theirs. And then you move into that house and now suddenly you don't have a house, right? And so maybe you're going to get some money towards rent because in a lot of jurisdictions they want implementation of a a, uh, prenup to be fair and reasonable at the time that it rolls out. But what is fair and reasonable? So one way to correct for that is to, and, and, and any good lawyer will, will know this and will tell you to do this. You want to have provisions that um, sunset over time. So, you know, you have one set of outcomes for this long, another set of outcomes for that long. You know, you're married for 20 or 30 years. You know, that's going to be different than if you're married for five or 10 years. Whether or not you have kids might make a difference. You know, like you really need to think things through and, and do your best to not think of yourself as being selfish because you're advocating to be financially on your feet. It doesn't mean that you, you know, need to take half of the $10 million that they came in with, but don't walk away from everything. It just doesn't make any sense. Oh, I think that's, that's really strong advice. I think people do feel a little guilt. A lot of guilt. I mean, I, I have a hard time. I've had a hard time in the past sometimes doing prenups for people who just want to walk away from everything. You know, the, the, the spouse with the money hands them the prenup and is like, sign this. And they're like, I don't care. I don't want anything. You know, well, don't come crying to me when you have <laughs> signed away all of your rights, you know, and then 20, 25 years later, you know, you're SOL and there's not much you can do about it. What do you think about these online prenup sites? You know, I think they do. For me, I think they have a market, but I don't know in your experience if you're if you would suggest them or what people should be thinking about if they're going to use them and do they still need to have a lawyer after they use them? Okay, so first of all, you need a lawyer before you use it. You need a lawyer while you're using it, and you need a lawyer after you use it. And my advice is not to do cookie cutter things that are going to have such a profound impact on your life. Like it just doesn't make any sense. Why do you have a prenup? Because you have too much money. And so you're going to do this, you know, you're going to save $10,000 over $2 million. I mean, it all depends on what the equities are. But my advice is definitely to invest on the front end because you'll be happy that you did so on the back end. Like saving that little bit of money now, I know like very often, especially with first marriages, people don't have much money. And so they're reticent to spend money that they haven't really had access to yet, especially if it's like a family money situation or if they just earned the money in the last two years or whatever. But you have to really think through the fact that in the broader scheme of things, five or 10 or 15 or even $20,000, but I mean, it depends who's listening, you know, like you, of course you can get a prenup done for, for inexpensive, but this is one situation where it may very well be that you are getting what you pay for. So if you're going to do it, I'm a big believer in like doing things once, doing things right, and then not having to redo it and not kicking yourself. Yeah. I've seen actually people who actually have some resources for whatever reason, not use attorneys 
And then they just make one or two mistakes, which may invalidate the whole entire agreement. And I ask uh, clients about this, and I don't necessarily get any response that would make sense to me. So I think that's good response, good uh, oh, yeah. information. I have had people, you know, I do a lot of mediation these days, Corey, and I've had couples come to me who want a prenup. And so what I do, I don't write their prenup. But what I do is I really push them in both directions to come up with something to then go to the lawyers with and let somebody draw it up and let the other person comment. So that way it's not like a cram down situation. Okay. So now we are married and there's been an event during the marriage, which calls maybe the marriage in question. And Maybe the person has done some Googling or reached out to a divorce coach or divorce attorney and learned about a postnuptial agreement. You know, what is a postnuptial agreement and what are those things good for or what are they good for? So like a postnuptial and a separation agreement in substance is, are quite similar. But the difference is when you have a postnup, it's sort of like a, an attempt at a Band-Aid or a cast to hold the marriage together. Like there's really not an intention to separate. It's just like, let's say one of the partners is a government employee and the other partner has always been an entrepreneur and they have some money that is kind of like in their pot, but they want to do something that the, the government employee views as pretty risky. Okay. So they, they don't want to wind up to be on the hook for like debts that would come out of this business venture, say, right? So you might make a post up to say, um, I, I'm agreeing that you can do this thing. However, to the extent that there's debts created, you know, there you're, you're, you, the, the risk taker, are taking on all the financial responsibility that will not be considered a marital debt, won't even be up for consideration. So it's that kind of thing. Or, or say like somebody discovered th- that, you know, the other party was having an affair, right? And you live in a state where inheritance gets split, you know, even if it's like 20% still, right? And so you're going to say, you know what, I'm going to stay married to you, but I want to post up where you say, no matter what, you know, you're not taking any of my, you know, th- this is, you're not going to take any of my retire, my um, inheritance. That's sort of the, you know, your punishment for stepping outside of the marriage. Like people use it as a punitive thing. People also use it as a way to, uh, you know, they, they, sometimes people use it as a, um, a sword instead of a shield, right? So they use it to sort of negotiate a better deal for the separation agreement when they know that the other party is going to some kind of screw something up. So it's kind of it's it's a tricky tricky topic these postnups and um, you don't see very many of them um, you don't get I, I haven't gotten many calls for postnups over the years and when I do once we get talking we typically move it over to a separation or a stipulation of separation uh, a stip or a separation agreement depending where you work um, you know what jurisdiction you're in what it's called and. You might say in the agreement, this agreement shall not be used as a basis of divorce and shall not apply for X years so that the people are committed to therapy or whatever healing things they want to do together. So let's say now we're well into the marriage, but we're thinking about we're thinking about uh, divorce. We've been thinking about divorce for a long time. We're just unhappy. But the concern, a potential concern that I see is we we focus so much on getting that divorce, thinking that divorce is going to bring us happiness. But is it is is it 
possible that we might be just blinded by this, maybe grass is always greener, or maybe blinded by the fact that we're just unhappy? So in terms of whether divorce is the right answer or not, you know, it's so personal. Some people stay too long from the perspective of people who leave quickly. Other people bail too quickly from the perspective of people who really stick with it. Um, But my biggest piece of advice is to, before you just bail, you know, do a good hard look at yourself and at your circumstances, you know, the other things in your life that might be making you unhappy. Sometimes there's so many things going on that are upsetting in your life. It might be work. It might be with a kid. It might be with a, you know, somebody else. And, you know, your spouse who is so annoying, <laughs> you know, they're the easiest thing to get rid of. And, and you might start pitting all of your upset on them. And they may be the source of your upset, but it could be something else. So, I would invite you to consider first trying to clean up as much of the other things in your life before you bail on your marriage. And also, I shouldn't say bail, exit, right? Because bailing sounds like bad. Um, And it's not bad if it's the right thing to do. Um, But the other thing is to make sure that you're keeping your lane clear, right? I mean, again, it all depends on temperament and what you want out of life. And I've really come to terms with the fact that there is no answer, you know, as to whether to stay or go. That's why people ask that question. And that's why should I stay or should I go? If you Google it, there's like a million things you can read, right? Because it's so, it is so darn personal. But if you do want to stay, you know, ask yourself if there's a way you can find greater happiness from within your marriage Because like, I mean, if you watch my TED talk, I tell a little bit of my own story, right? Um, Which is that I was, I spent a lot of the early years of my marriage quite frustrated with my husband, who I perceived to be like super selfish. He was always like hunting and running and traveling for work. And like he moved, you know, I moved to be in a more remote location where he worked because he's a bird biologist, right? And like, and I was making my life too small and I was blaming him, right? And then I was like, you know what? I had all these ideas of things I wanted to do. And that's when I wrote Better Apart. And that's when I started to travel more for work. And I started to take bigger and bigger and bigger cases. And I started talking a lot, you know, on stages. And just like, I started to take ownership of my own life because I figured like, okay, well, if I get divorced, what would I do? Well, let me just do that here. And like, either he'll accommodate or he won't. Right. And like when I started to do it, I will admit, like his first reaction was like, well, we're going to have to talk. I mean, he would like die. He heard me. He's not going to listen to this. <laughs> but like, you know, he'd be like, we're going to have to talk about this like book tour. And I was like, we're well, not have to talk about anything. You need to stay home with the kids and I'm going on a book tour. Like, you know, so <laughs> but but, you know. To your point. I sort of above the mind that by the time people are hiring me. They have decided they're grownups and they've decided they're going to be getting divorced. Now, I, at this point, do mostly mediation. It's two people coming in. Um, but, you know, I would say once a year, maybe I have couples reconcile, maybe twice a year. I mean, it does happen. And I always invite people, you know, if, if it sounds like they're fighting more over something that seems low level, you know, maybe you can look at this. Maybe we could try that. And, you know. 
again, there, there's, there's just no one size fits all for this. There's no easy fix, unfortunately. If there were, people would stop Googling it because they would just know the answer. It's sort of like the prenups, right? Like you wouldn't need lawyers to draft up prenups if you could just do it easily online. It just doesn't make any sense. Yeah, I was, I was impressed when I learned about the change that you made in your life to make it better. And I mean, that's the highest research on anything. It, it starts with you. So I was really impressed that you first did the techniques and now you're sharing these techniques. So I think that's great. Uh, all right. So now the big question is how do you tell children? And I'm sure this is age dependent, but this is a big one. How do you tell children you're getting divorced? Yeah. So, I mean, so much depends on your children, their temperaments, right? Your relationship, you know, ideally you sit down together you explain to the children, depending on their age, right? If they're like school age, like between like, you know, second grade and sixth grade. And you very simply explain things like, you know, mom and dad have problems. They don't have to do with you. Always take it off of them, right? Your children, you get to be children. And we're going to, we're, we are totally committed to the two of you. We both love you so much. And this is the part that I love. You children are not going to run circles around us the way that can happen in a divorce because we're going to be in good communication when it comes to your well-being at all times. And if you are thinking, if you're listening to this and you're like, oh my God, what is she talking about? There's no way. There are apps, there, there are ways to communicate where you can actually have meaningful exchange of information without, you know, having dinner together or having a glass of wine with your ex. You know, you, you could, you can do things on an app. You can do things via a separate email account. And, you know, in the beginning it can be really hard, but, but, but to make your goal to have better communication, it's only going to serve, never mind serving um, your children. It's going to serve you because you're going to feel better. Cause when we, when we have better relationships, everything trickles down from there, right? And the best, most important relationship to have a good relationship with is yourself. So if you hold yourself to the highest standard, you know, then you're going to, um, it's going to come back at you most of the time. Not always, but most of the time. One thing not to do to the extent that you can, you can help yourself is to um, not tell the kids on your own and, you know, not do a lot of finger pointing, even if you feel like your spouse is, you know, the jerky one, like your kids know, your kids have been there. They see what's going on. At the end of the day, it all works out. Just try to be as clear as you can and as united as you can and take the blame off your kids because kids, from what I understand, internalize so much of the shame and the blame, like unbelievably so. I like this idea of having a united front if you can. I mean, that for the children, because I mean, no matter what happens as you uncouple as a family, you're always going to be the the parents. I mean, that doesn't change. Uh, I haven't seen a judge change that unless it's a very sad situation where you're basically they take away your kid because right. you're. So that's very rare. Like termination of parental yeah. rights is quite rare. Right. Uh, okay. So now a big, another big thing comes up when you're thinking about divorce and a lot of reason people move on is because maybe you have a new partner. But how do you introduce this new partner that you're dating? Are you you keep it on the side? And, and obviously, we're talking about with a, a, a divorce with children. Without children, I think it's a little different rules. You can basically, if everyone's an adult, do what you want. But if you have children, are you supposed to be open? Are you supposed to introduce these these new partners? What do you see, and what do you would suggest? 
So the first thing I would say is, you know, you see things all over the place, right? Like we people, we're all nuts. Everybody's crazy, right? So like one thing that I've loved about being a divorce lawyer is like, I don't feel like self-conscious about my craziness because I know you've got craziness and so does every single person listening, like everybody, right? So what do I see? I see everything. What should be happening is you should not be introducing everyone you go on a date with. You should, I mean, I shouldn't say should. Oh my gosh, the word should is like such a big no-no. You Make your best efforts to keep third parties out of your children's lives until such time that those people look like they're going to be with you for some period of time. And there's so many reasons for that. It's not because, I don't think it's because your kid is going to be confused as to like who their real dad is. I mean, like people say that, oh, they're going to be, they're not going to be confused most of the time. But the, the issue is more of one of having stability and security and dependability. You know, never mind any like moralistic overtones, like, oh, you know, you're not modeling good behavior. Like, forget that. It's just about your kids feeling confident and secure and that the people who come into their lives are going to be there for a longer period of time. And again, I'm not a therapist. I'm not a psychiatrist. I do not have mental health backgrounds, but I have been doing this for a very, very long time. And I can say like, I've now seen kids, kids get divorced. I know that's like embarrassing to admit, but <laughs> I have seen that. And, um, you know, and that means that the kids, kids are quite young when they get divorced. And some of them went through some pretty hard, um, you know, rocky divorces themselves. So all right. One of the last things that comes up in this time when you're thinking about divorce is you want to move out. I mean, that's the whole reason you need want to get divorced. You want to get some physical space. But if you have children, this might be problematic. And also, it might be problematic on a financial level to get two homes. So what do you uh, suggest in, uh, in these types of situations where you have a divorce, involves kids, but everything's telling you that you want to move out because you just can't stand being at home anymore. And you're just going to like blow off your top. If you know what I mean? Yeah. So first of all, if you're going to blow your top, get out of the house because that's the worst thing for your custody is blowing your top, right? That's the best way to get eliminated from your house. But generally, if you can take space and create like some kind of parenting plan, even while you're living together. During COVID, I did that with so many people because everybody was trapped in their houses. Most people were. And so you can really make a parenting schedule while still living together, depending on how much space you have in your house, right? So you kind of have an on and off sort of situation, even with nobody's moving out, you know, just casually, okay, Monday and Wednesday is going to be my night to be in charge of dinner. So you're sort of staying out of each other's way and Tuesday and Thursday can be your night. Um, in terms of like, when can I move out? So I get that question all the time because like I said, I mediate and many of my clients have lawyers, uh, but most of my clients don't want to call their lawyers for everything, right? So they say, Gabrielle, I want to move out. I'm signing a lease. Can I move out? And I say, well, you're asking me because I'm not your lawyer and I'm going to say, sure, move out. Your wife seems trustworthy. But as your lawyer, I'm going to tell you, wait until you have a fully signed agreement so you know when you're going to have custody, parenting time, access to your children. So you don't feel like, oh my gosh, I can't get back into my house. You know, I mean, the more you have hammered out the more details you have written down, the better. And I really strongly suggest you have a fully signed, if not 
a separation agreement than an agreement for temporary orders, whether or not it's filed with the courts, but something that is formalizing what your access schedule is. Now, what if you don't have enough money? I mean, like <clears throat> one other thing that I, I'm finding a lot of people are struggling with is because rents are so high. I have a lot, you know, a lot of work in New York City and rents are so high and people really can't afford to have, you know, two, three bedroom apartments. I have a lot of hard conversations, you know, are you going to move to another neighborhood? Are you going to pull your kids from private school? Are you going to get smaller places, right? Are you going to nest for a period of time? But with little kids, it's not like a really good long-term solution nesting. So um, yeah, these are hard conversations and there aren't always easy answers. Yeah. I mean, what I'm hearing is that time frame may be longer than what you want, um, which is an adjustment that people have to really understand if they're going to do things the right way. And if things go south in court, I mean, you should have things in everything memorialized. A lot of people don't. A lot of people take chances. Um, but yeah, these are, these are difficult situations. And back to your question about boyfriends and girlfriends, here's another you know hot take. Don't, unless you guys have been separated for a while and everybody's got a boyfriend or girlfriend or has really moved on. If you're trying to resolve your case, just lay low with the new love interests because it does not help you bring your case to resolution. It just doesn't. I've been doing this a very, very long time. And, you know, maybe, you you know, hearing that you're rolling your eyes like, oh, you're so out of touch. But I am not out of touch. And I have seen a lot of near resolutions almost not work out because of a new girlfriend or boyfriend's mere presence. No, I can I could totally understand that, and I agree with that. Uh, you never want to show more than you have to because you don't know how the other side's going to react. So I think that's that's really uh, assume the worst. I think assume the worst. Exactly, exactly right. Assume the worst is what. Be as careful. Like if you go in front of the court, I'm like, you know, we're not getting a wise judge. I used to think I would get a judge like your former judge, like Judge Sunshine, who's smart and thoughtful. But not every judge is going to be smart and thoughtful and wise. And that's what I tell my clients. You might get someone who's actually nasty, never read anything. He doesn't even know anything about family law. And that's our judge. And we treat that judge like it's a federal amazing judge because that's who we have. We don't – what are we going to do? Uh, all right. So let's move on to your strong suit, which is mediation. You left the court system to work in mediation. And I think you were doing a lot of mediation-type stuff in court. And I and I think I do that, too. We're all trying to resolve cases. And I think a lot of judges do that, too. It's just a different style, um, you know, when you have the, the court behind you. It's a little different um, than if you do it in your conference room or online. But one thing I've seen is there's usually a party who goes through the mediation process who might be more conflict-adverse. And maybe this is a person you're talking about who's doing that prenup, and it's like, I'll just give up everything. So how do you help those people or what should the mediator do or, or maybe some tidbits you can, you can give this person?
we might have to have a few more meetings or we might have to have a few more uncomfortable conversations. And I'm going to bring things up now because if I don't bring them up, when they go to their lawyer, they're going to bring them up. Or three years later, when you have a problem, it's going to get brought up and it's going to be so much less pleasant. So I take people into breakout rooms and I don't tell them what to say and I don't give them advice. But I give them information if, if they're in New York or Massachusetts where I'm a licensed attorney, right? I give them legal information. Um, and I, I, I reflect to them what I'm seeing, right? Like I say, Hey, I can see that you're not happy with this in the looks in your eyes or, you know, or, or the, the slumped over body. I'm, I'm feeling that this is happening, but I, I cannot advocate for you in the room and you're going to need to advocate for yourself. And, and I don't do this like behind the other person's back. Like I say, right in our first introductory, like I'm not your mediator if you want to just take advantage of your weaker spouse. Like that's not going to happen. It's just not happening. And, um, you know, most people stick with me. Do I lose some people because of that? I'm sure, but I, I don't care. It's fine. Like I want people who want good agreements, right? And there's always the right balance where, Everybody gives something up and usually they don't care about the same things. And even that passive person can get a pretty good deal and not feel like they've been greedy, you know, because they might they might care about non-economic benefits, too. Not everybody cares about money and not everybody cares about seeing their kids every day either. By the way, you know, we have this whole new thing like everybody has to have shared custody. You know what? Not everybody needs to have shared custody. And it's not a terrible crime to have sole physical custody. It might be better for you both parties and the kid. And I think we have to like be a little more flexible and not, you know, help people not feel judged for not wanting to have 50, 50, you know, that's not, it's not always necessary. Yeah. It's nice that you have this ability in your mediations to meet independently with the, you know, with the party or with the person, because I do feel that someone who is conflict averse will feel much less pressure uh, talking just just to you, and especially if they trust the mediator, and they should trust the mediator. Hopefully, um, they will be more vulnerable, and maybe in, through those communications, you know, these types of issues can be worked out. So they don't necessarily leave things on the table that's important to them. And I agree with you; what's important to them varies. It doesn't necessarily only have to be the money. Uh, what have you seen? You know, because just like we said, we assume the worst. So let's assume the worst now. Uh, even though everyone's, you know, we're going to mediation, how do we know that they're not just trying to manipulate the mediation process and maybe increase the time budget and just waste our energy? How do we know that and what, what can we do? We who? You mean the mediator? Well, the other side who's just getting uh, jerked around. You know, let's say that they go to mediation, but, you know, Things are just slow. That's what I, a lot of what I hear think agreements aren't being signed, but you want to give it a good faith effort to try. How do you know what's the balance between, you know, is it just yeah. one session or is it like six months? What should we be thinking about to make sure that someone's not manipulating the process? Yeah. So that actually drove me crazy um, for a very long time. And so now 
90% of my work or so is flat rate mediation, prepay, both people have a vested interest in it and it's use it or lose it within this period of time. So I really have gotten rid of having that issue. And I think a flat rate mediator where both people have a financial interest because you've paid like you've paid your five or ten thousand dollars, like you're not getting it back. You're going to go to those sessions. Whereas people who are paying a little bit here, a little bit there, like they're more likely to do that. And and it is hard to know, right? It's hard to know um, because I think Oftentimes I'll get a call where one person really wants to mediate and I listen to them for a while and I'm like, ooh, you know, you're not a mediation case. Like they start to say things about their ex and, you know, and then I, I refer them to somebody who, you know, I'll refer them to my counsel in New York or Boston who litigate because, you know, mediation isn't for everyone. I do think it's appropriate for way more people than who uses it, you know, than who use it. Um, but it is not for everyone. And, you know, if you find yourself that you, you're served and you have to go to court, you know, it's okay if you have to go to court. Don't beat yourself up over it. Just always make your best efforts to come to a place where you can meet one another as long as you're not compromising your fundamental inner needs. That's a whole other, like, that's a whole ep other episode, Corey. <laughs> well, no, but it's good information. What about mediation bias? Is there things you could tell? Because a lot of times I get these you know, after the fact, they say, oh, this mediator was biased, wasn't for me. How would you be able to tell in the session if a mediator is biased or not biased? And I'm sure this does come up. And I'm sure we all have our own biases, but I'm not just talking about our, you know, our little biases that we may have. I'm talking about where someone really feels like they're just being railroaded, something like that. Yeah. So, I mean, I think if you're in a mediation session and it doesn't feel right, like trust your gut, certainly. I'm always inviting feedback from my clients, especially because my clients are all prepay. And so like they they need to know that they can tell me what they're feeling, how they're feeling. And, you know, as a mediator, like as mediators, we do a lot of training. I mean, I'm, I give trainings, I go to trainings to make sure that like, okay, well, maybe I was being kind of one-sided about that. Like we're all like that. And it's okay to be like, huh. And that doesn't mean you have to overcorrect in the other direction, but having an open dialogue is super important. Um, there are mediators, because I, I, I used to do a lot of attorney-assisted mediation, and so I would go in as the lawyer. And it is true, like when you're sitting as the lawyer for a party in mediation, you, you have a different perspective. And <clears throat> there are mediators whose biases are more obvious, right? Like there's mediators who are always pro the woman, always pro the man, always pro the working person, you know, like... You know, there's mediators who never stayed home for one day after they had babies and then they have no patience for the stay-at-home mom clients. Well, that's not really fair, right? I mean, so, but I think knowing, like as a mediator, knowing where you have your biases and even owning them goes a long way. Um, if, if you're a listener and you're feeling like your mediator is against you or you're not really gelling with them, it's something to definitely talk about, even with the mediator. Your mediators can handle it. I mean, mediators are, you know, the the um, sister or cousin of the lawyers, and we know we're dealing with people in conflict, and we know that people are upset, and it's okay. Like, we get paid to deal with very hard issues during very trying times. So I'm just, I'm a really big advocate of having communication that is, as vulnerable as possible, because that's when when um, the best 
resolutions are arrived at, actually. All right. What about this? You've, I, I believe you've done online mediations before it became very popular with COVID. And, uh, but I also believe you've done in-person mediations. Is there a difference that you have seen with the online, online mediation where it's becoming more accepted? And, you know, to me, one thing I see is like they don't have to be in the same room. Oh, my God. So, so there's a lot of media. I'm on like all these different panels and like a lot of mediators don't like online mediators. I mean, right. They're comfortable in the office. They have this idea that, you know, the parties want to be in office. I actually love online mediation. I think it is so much better for divorce. I can't say about for everything than um, in person because, you know, people going through divorce, they are gut-wrenched, most of them. And this way they can be in their own environment. They don't have to have those awkward conversations with their soon-to-be ex. If it's a, a situation where there's like high, mid to high conflict or there's a new partner or whatever, they don't have to like run into them in the parking lot, on the way to the bathroom. It's much easier to have those breakout rooms. I mean, it's not, even if you have a beautiful giant office space and you have plenty of rooms, it's so nice to be able to chat and say, hey, do you mind if I just have a quick private talk with him or her, you know, and <clears throat> nine times out of 10, people say, absolutely, you know, and you can get through a lot. Because one of the things that I love with the breakout tool is that you can really have conversations and learn about your clients without having to have the other party listen to all the stuff they've already heard a hundred times, right? Because a lot of times, like both parties really want you to know everything and you each know, they know everything. They've lived together. They've been married. They have kids. They're gonna, like there's no new information. There's no like big secrets, right? Like that's the whole thing. Like people are like, oh my God, can I trust you? Like there's, there's really like, you know everything already, right? Like the only thing you might not know is like, do they have a new boyfriend or girlfriend, which is not outcome determinative for anything anyway, right? So like other than that, um, so I just think online is, great. It is quicker. It is easier. I think it's less um, emotionally taxing for for the parties. I know I do it faster. Like I know that because you're just spending less time sitting with their emotion, you know, having them like throw a glass of water at somebody, you know, like the nonsense that comes up is really way down. But what about recording? Because, you know, they could record the mediations, which is supposed to be confidential. Does that concern you and does that come up? So I have every single person sign a very robust technology agreement, right? And quite frankly, today they could record you in office too, because it's not like you're going to have your grown-up uh, client, you know, turn in their cell phone, right? I mean, so anybody right. can record anything. You know, sometimes I'm worried that there's a third party in the room, but when that has happened, you know, usually people are like, nobody's here, nobody's here. But you're like, well, I just saw you talking to somebody. So, I mean, again, you have to have an open relationship with your mediator. You have to have clear communication. I mean, I don't spend a whole mediation session reviewing my retainer agreement because I feel like that's like a waste of my client's time and money. But a, a lot of mediators do that. I do say, I do highlight the, the the big points like no third parties, no recordings, be online five minutes early, you know, tech, all the tech issues. I let them know up front. Um, but no, I, I just, I think it's great. 
Hmm. When I was going through your works, your 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 book, uh, your second book, which I know is coming out um, next year, gave me an advanced copy to look at, and and looking at your TED Talk and just listening to your podcast, I, I realized I thought your superpower, and I could be wrong here, is you're a super communicator. And you're, you have this ability, it seems, to reframe. And one thing I know in my mediation trainings, everything has to be reframed. So for example, you know, if you think of supervised parenting time, that sounds heavy. Like supervised parenting time, that's horrible. But then some some judges will say, well, how about facil- you know, how about we just have facil- facilitated parent time? You're like, facilitated? That doesn't doesn't sound as bad. And I, I've heard you say, for example, you know, I know when you were a child, you went back and forth in your home, and some judges will call that ping-ponging. You called it, you know, flowing, which again, I thought that was a world-class reframe. So I think if we're moving away from mediation where we're like, you know, or we're in these difficult mediations because we we say things that are triggering, we think things that are triggering, I just want to go through some things that I'm just going to give you some things I thought of as triggering. And I want to hear you. Oh, God. Reframe it. <laughs> I'll try, Corey. <laughs> Well, I start off my beginning mediations if I have any inkling that somebody thinks the other person is like selfish or a narcissist because I get a lot of calls saying, do you mediate with narcissists? I'm like, everyone's a narcissist. (laughs) I start off by saying everyone thinks their spouse is a narcissist. Some people are actually married to narcissists. Other people are married to people who are a bit self-centered. And when you're getting divorced, I will tell you when I worked for Judge Sunshine and I read... So many, um, they called them forensic evaluations, like the the psychiatric psychology. Um, I used to like wave my hand above and say, oh, obsessive, compulsive, narcissistic, because when you're getting divorced, that's how people act. So, um, you know, I kind of normalize things a lot. And I and I say, well, you know, I'm not a magician. I'll do the best I can. Um, we'll see how it goes. But let's do all we can. Um, let's, you know, I'll say in a breakout, let's not do name calling, you know, yeah, it seems really hard and they, they may be really difficult and I'm sure I don't know what you're dealing with, but let's, let's just try to lean into the process and see if we can, you know, sort things out in a way that's going to work for both of you. Okay. That makes me feel a little better. So now let's say I'm thinking, or maybe I say this word, you know, we can't resolve this because, uh, my wife's a gold digger. That's why. <laughs> I've like I've never actually I've never heard that. Isn't that funny? Even never though, heard that. Okay. So what would you what would you reframe? Because a gold digger seems to be hard to move away from. Yeah, yeah. So no, 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 that's fine. I'll, I'll say, you know, I, I hear that it's incredibly um inflammatory and upsetting. And I totally get it to to think that they um that that your your wife who maybe even like had an affair is now gonna get half your pension, right? Because like nobody wants to share your pension. And I'm like, I that is so hard to, to stomach, and I totally get it. Uh, I feel I, uh, you're, you're already doing it. See, I told you this was your superpower. All right, so I felt come more comfortable. And when you feel a little bit more comfortable where someone understands you, someone accepts you, then you're more open to listening. And I think that's what you do really, really well. So that's, let's talk about uh, some co-parenting communication issues uh, that come up. And we're you know, on the verge of the holidays. 
So how can we make the holidays easier for co-parents who are going through their maybe their first holiday season as either they're divorced or they're definitely uncoupled? Okay, so here's the thing with holidays. And I and I do I've done like so many shows about like the how to get through the holidays. Clarity, 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 clarity. If you don't have a mediator and you can't get an appointment yet, you know, try to work something out, make a little spreadsheet with start times and stop times. Agreements like if if you're if somebody's getting them a really big present, can you go in and it together? Do you have to meet each other's presents? I mean, there there are so many ways that you can ruin your children's memories of the holidays. And and I think if you put forward like, what do you want your kids to remember about the holidays? And like again, just do your best. Like I have three kids. I'm sure I've done lots of things that have messed up all my kids. Like we're just all doing my best. So I'm not like saying this like, oh, if I were getting divorced, this is what I would do. But I know that the best thing to do, the best thing for you to do is to have clear expectations from the outset because you're going to find things to fight about anyway. So at least knowing the schedule, that should be very clear in your separation agreement. And if it is not clear in your separation agreement and your kids are young and, you know, they're not teenagers, you just have a little while more um, and you have many years ahead, I highly recommend that you set up an appointment and, you know, and and you have you work with somebody very closely as as I've been doing with a lot of people right now and set up an agreement for modification of judgment that clearly modifies the parenting plan for specificity. Again, you can always deviate, but you want to have a clear, enforceable, unequivocal agreement so that everybody knows their expectations and there is as little negotiation that has to happen through the holidays. So people can just enjoy their holidays. I think that word. Uh, for people who are listening to it, to being clear and specific. I want you to think 10 times more specific and more clear. And, you know, when Gabrielle said the times, I mean, that's the start, but it's so easy to have ambiguity and to have problems. So I think you're 100% right to be as clear as possible. I mean, it's I, going to be- on the flip side, I, I've had agreements where somebody was like, my son must have, you know, 4.5 grams of this kind of protein every day. Like, <laughs> you know, <laughs> you could go to an extreme, but definitely start times, stop times. You could even have a conversation about presence, you know, because because you can get into that whole competitive thing that you want to avoid. You know, as as much as you can hash things out with your mediator, the better. And again, like, Give, 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 give. And when you can't give any more, give a little more and your kids are going to be having better memories. I love that. I love that thought. All right. So now we bring in attorneys Mm. and this is a big decision people have, you know, how do you choose the right attorney for you? Am I supposed to have someone who's, I heard this, you know, like a bulldog? Am I supposed to have someone who's mediation friendly, but then maybe get slaughtered? You need to know who your spouse is going to hire, right? Like sometimes people will call me and I hear who their spouse has. And I'm like, oh no, I have somebody else for you. Because really you can't have a mediation friendly attorney up against somebody who's going to play dirty. It's just not going to work. And it doesn't mean like the other lawyer is going to lie, you know, or anything like that, although they may. Um, But like you, you you need to... um, not be fighting, playing defense. The best defense in divorce court is a strong offense. That's just the fact, right? I did, after I worked for Judge Sunshine, I did litigate for longer than I care to admit. And um, 
And I had to learn, I because my, my personality was, is I'm not that way. And I really had to learn to be very, very aggressive um, in the, in the court environment, because if you're not aggressive, you will get crushed. And so if you think you have a, a difficult person who you're divorcing, they're probably going to hire somebody very aggressive. And you need to also have somebody who's very aggressive. And it's very expensive and there's really no way around it. That's just the reality of it. So, um, you know, it's like when you have to get dental work done and it's expensive and there's no way around it. It's a similar kind of thing, unfortunately. Yeah, it's um, if I'm listening to that and I don't want, yes, let's say my spouse hired a baddie. I don't want a difficult divorce. I don't want to go to court and spend all this money, but I'm hearing you say that I'm forced to. Are you telling me unless I move to like halfway around the world, there's no way out of this? Even if you move halfway around the world, there's no way out of this. (laughs) Get a therapist, get a coach, you know, start taking like yoga or meditation or, you know, go to Pure Bar or Broadway dance studio, like whatever is good. Do something physical and 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 really get yourself emotional supports because it's a marathon it's not a sprint and you might not be in charge of it and that is horrible that is like the most horrible thing i mean i've had things in my life as i'm sure you've had things in your life that you're not in charge you know you're just not and and it's really hard so the only way to get to the end is to go through it and try to get yourself surround yourself with the people who lift you up your elevator people do your very best to keep your 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 um like energetically, I know I don't sound like a lawyer, it's about like your energy lifted, but like you really want to have like your energy lifted and you, um, you know, every, anything that you can do to emotionally support yourself. We all have these narratives in our minds that are, are pulling us down. And um, the more that we can do to hush those vipers and keep ourselves in a space where we know that we deserve, we can have, we will get through. And you know what? A lot of times, even your high conflict spouse eventually gets sick of paying their lawyer and you can still work things out. So don't lose all hope, even if it seems like you can't, if you can't settle. Well, it. I, I'm glad you gave some hope because I do think it's a very challenging process. Uh, it's a very hard process. And I also like how you focus on self-care, which is focusing what's in your control, which is really very Almost the only thing you can do is focus. The only thing you can do. I mean, you have no options. It's not even like, you know, uh, because otherwise you can like really be at risk for falling into a depression and you don't, that's not going to help you or your kids if you have kids. Yeah. I think these are sound uh, suggestions. All right. Moving on to just one or two more questions. Uh, All right. So let's talk about legal tech. I don't know if there's any legal tech, any apps out there that you suggest uh, maybe for co-parents or for just helping through this process that you found to be really helpful for people you work with? Yeah. I mean, people like, um, there, there's payment tech, like um, Decomply, and there's like co-parenting tech. There's the FAIR app. There's the Our Family Wizard app. Like there's, there's a bunch of things that can help you to sort out your payments and also to sort out your parenting plan. <clears throat> and they're a bit better than just using Google or Sheets, right? Because they're really tailored. Um, the Decomply app, which it might have been integrated into the Leap system at this point, but just just Google Decomply or look in your app store for Decomply. Um, it's really nice. It's set up as almost like Venmo for co-parents with notifications and all that kind of stuff, like a lot of things. So like if somebody doesn't pay, 
you'll get an alert, you know, and then if you have to file a contempt to or an enforcement proceeding, all the paperwork is right there for you. So that makes things a lot easier. Um, I'm personally not a very techie person. So, you know, that's sort of as far as I'm going to go in that regard. There are, um, you know, if you're a, a high net worth person getting divorced, um, there is an app called Detour Life, which can help you to organize all of your documentation. So if you have a a tech-oriented lawyer and a tech-oriented partner, you know, that kind of thing can be nice just as an organizational tool. Um, my personal opinion is that none of the tech is quite there yet because the court system hasn't caught up with it. It's not really fully integrated. Not every lawyer is going to use it. So like, let's say you use it, but the other person's still using Dropbox. It's like not really compatible, which is why, you know, I, I've tried a lot of different things personally, other than the parent um, communication, like the, the FAIR app, F-A-Y-R, or the Our Family Wizard app for communicating and calendaring, and then decomply for paying. Other than that, I think a lot of it, it's going to get there. It's it's amazing. I'm not insulting any of the tech. I'm just saying it's not there yet. We haven't we haven't met like Facebook of divorce tech. That's true. I don't know. I don't know if Facebook's a good thing anymore, right? I don't know if I want to make a Facebook analogy, but. Right. But I think your point is well taken. It's not like Google has made it a priority to make the most streamlined app out there. There is stuff out there that is helpful, but if you're expecting you know, something to work at that level, at that smoothness. It's not there yet. And I agree with that. All right. I know you have a lot of information out there in the universe. And I, and if people want to go a little deeper dive than our conversation, um, where should they start? So if you go, if you go to um, gabriellehartley.com and you go into the about page and you want to look at the media, you scroll down and you can find all my podcasts and all the, um, you know, all that kind of stuff. If you want to hear more, listen to um, different angles. And if you want to work with me um, as your online mediator, just go to services and then click online mediation. I also do strategic coaching and um, litigation, um, but online mediation is what I do most of the time. Um, just click there and you can read all about the packages and um, reach out and I'd be more than happy to work with you. Gabrielle, thank you so much for your time, for your vulnerability in this podcast and all your writings and your TED Talk. And I really want to tell you that you're doing great out there. I'm so happy you took your childhood experiences. Like I was a child, a product of divorce. And I think your parents seem to be more progressive than most and are really helping, as you say, uh, move people better apart. So thank you so much. Thank you very much. Thank you. Take care. Remember, this podcast is for informational purposes only. Please consult with your attorney before acting on the information contained in this podcast. Until next time. Be creative, not reactive.